0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics dojo. Yes, it's great to be with you today as we're kicking off a brand new week of learning how to defend, share the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And um, man, I can't wait to uh, to start the week off. Got some great guests lined up for us this week, and uh, we're going to kick it off with a good friend of ours and someone. Uh, who's been on the show, but we haven't talked about his conversion story, his journey of faith, which is really fascinating uh, for a long, long time. And I know that we have a lot of new listeners, a lot of new people uh, watching social media and so on. So I, I asked him if he wouldn't mind come on the show again and share his journey of faith. And that is Bruce Sullivan. As you know, Bruce Sullivan grew up in a Baptist home eventually became a member of the Church of christ um if it, you're ever familiar with the uh if you're familiar with the Church of Christ do you know that it, um, it's it's a very interesting collection of uh beliefs in that uh they are like solo scriptorists bible alone Christians put on steroids I mean they believe that the New Testament actually gives you a pattern for how the church ought to be done and uh so they're very very um um, what do i say very close to the text of the new testament obviously and interesting enough they came up with some doctrines that come pretty close and even coincide with some distinctively catholic doctrines at that so um conversions from the church of christ um doesn't happen a lot, although from what I understand, it's becoming more and more frequent. Um, so uh, Bruce Sullivan's going to share his testimony about uh, becoming a Baptist, to eventually becoming a minister in the Church of Christ, and then becoming Catholic. And hopefully by the end of the program, we could talk a little bit about how uh, once he became uh, came into the Catholic Church, now he's a Catholic deacon. So it's it's quite a journey of faith. And uh, as you know, Bruce is just a uh, super knowledgeable and fun guy to talk to. So he's going to share his journey of faith. That's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to do our Finding the Fallacy and the Meet the Early Church fathers segments. Today's Finding the Fallacy is called the Nirvana Fallacy. No, it doesn't have anything to do with grunge music. Uh, it's actually a a fairly common fallacy that's out there. And we're also going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father, ironically enough, really isn't an individual. At least we don't know who the individual is. All we have is a letter that, uh, he wrote to a certain Diognetus. And so we'll learn a little bit about who the possible author is, who Diognetus is, if we even know who Diognetus is and a little bit about what's in the letter. And it's very early, too, so it's an important witness to the early Christian faith. So all of that's coming up on this side of the break, but before we do anything, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience, and also all of you listening on radio around the country, and also via podcast around the world. Um, That's pretty cool. Um, People, it's funny when I invite guests, new (laughs) guests, They assume that, uh you know, this is just one of those uh, YouTube startup programs that uh, we just put the interviews on Zoom and, and put it up on social media. No, we are a ro- radio program, but we also distribute our program through social media as well. So, uh, you know, people access uh, media all sorts of different ways. So uh, that's also available um, as a podcast. So. For example, maybe you're going to be listening to Bruce Sullivan's journey and something's going to come up. Maybe you got a phone call, meeting to go to, who knows what, and you'd love to hear the end of it. All you have to do is go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, which is the official flagship website for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and just scroll down to Hands on Apologetics or any of the other great shows that's produced by Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and bam! It's right there. You can access the show and listen to it at your convenience. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, avail yourself of that if you need to. And also, by the way, take the opportunity to download it or share it. Tell your friends about the show. We appreciate that. That helps with our mission. Also, just talking about mission, i uh, like to give you my email address. Uh, the official Dojo mailbox. If you want to get a hold of me, Gary Machuda, the best way to do it, is through questions at hands-on-apologetics.com. Let me give that again: questions at hands-on-apologetics.com. That comes directly to me, and I do, uh, I do answer your uh, emails. In fact, uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. If you don't want me to get a hold of you, and you don't want me to read your messages, please send me a message on Facebook, because chances are. I will completely miss it because I just don't go on the message, uh, the message part on Facebook. So just FYI. Okay, so let's go to the finding the fallacy for today. Finding the fallacy is the nirvana fallacy. Nirvana fallacy is an informal fallacy of comparing actual things with unrealistic idealized alternatives. It can also refer to the tendency to assume that there is a perfect solution to a particular problem and hence, it goes by the AKA otherwise known as the perfect solution fallacy. Uh, so it's uh, basically you can one up any idea, any argument by coming up with a totally unrealistic and over idealized alternative. The problem is, of course, is uh, the argument or the position somebody may be laying out may be perfectly realistic and practical. So simply uh, by coming up an alternative that may be even better, but totally unreasonable and totally unrealistic, it's just basically a way of uh, uh, soft peddling uh, an imaginary solution for a real solution. And uh, so hence the name uh, Nirvana fallacy, because sometimes, uh, you know, especially when you're getting down to practical matters like in politics or so on, there's usually not a perfect solution. There's always uh, there's always some imperfections in it since we live in a fallen world. And so in politics, it's very frequently uh, put out that, uh, you know, something that's uh, reasonable yet imperfect will be dismissed because of some pie-in-the-sky um, position that a, a candidate or somebody may hold. And so be aware of the nirvana fallacy, you know, we all long for heaven, but you know what? Uh, heaven is not meant to be experienced here on earth, and it's total perfection. So uh, just be aware of that. And um, I don't know if it's ever occurred um, in any debate or discussion I've had per se. I've seen it used, but I never personally. I suppose if the Nirvana fellow was uh, given, I would basically just call him on it and just uh Explain, have them explain how realistically something like this would be done and actually implemented in real life. You know, uh, just call the cards, so to speak, on this one. I think that's probably the best way to refute it. So that's our finding the fallacy for today, the Nirvana fallacy. Let's meet our early church father for today, who is a very early church father indeed, although we can't really know who it is. It is the letter to Diognetus. This is an anonymous letter to Diognetus. It's an apologetic work in the form of a letter to a high dignitary among the pagans, someone known as Diognetus. While it may well be the letter is addressed to a particular person, it may uh, be taken as certain that Diognetus is a pseudonym. Uh, and so even the, the, the addressee of the letter is not certain. Um, uh, Jurgens Faith of the Fowler says, we have no place in the present work to consider the multitude of theories in respect to the identity of the author, the identity of the addressee, and the date of the composition. Uh, We cannot uh, ignore a certain one more recent proposals done by certain petrologists in the 1940s who proposed vigorously defended the opinion that the letter of is in fact the Apology of Quadratus, another early church father, which we know very little about. That's my commentary. It's not Juergens. Um Otherwise, evidenced only in the well-known fragment by Eusebius. But the Eusebius fragment is not found in the letter of Diognetus. So therefore, the patrologist thinks that he spotted a gap. And uh, so a gap between uh, chapter 7, verse 6 and chapter 7, verse 7, where he thinks he could uh, squeeze in. The fragment that is found in Eusebius into the letter. Needless to say, it's that seems extremely tentative and uh, most likely a kind of ad hoc solution. In my humble opinion, (coughs) Diognius. We're not sure who he is. Could be the emperor uh, Emperor Hadrian, and the apology or letter of Diognius would be presented to him by Quadratus, according to this. Uh petrologist sometime around the year 125, which is incredibly early. And in fact, sometimes you will see the letter of two Diognetus sometime placed among the apostolic fathers. And of course, the apostolic fathers are those early extra biblical Christian writings that were closest to the time of the apostles, at least within living memory of the apostles. So if this dating holds out and it's, it's written about 125 A.D., it certainly could be included amongst that collection. However, other scholars place it much later, like around 200 A.D., which would definitely place it out of that period into what's known as the uh, period of the Apologist. And that is our early church father for today, the letter of Diognetus. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Bruce Sullivan and talking about his journey of faith. So you don't want to miss it, stay tuned. Now back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, you can learn a lot about your own faith by listening to other people's journeys of faith. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We have a good friend, uh, Bruce Sullivan, who's been on a number of times. But it's been a long time since we talked about his own conversion story. Bruce, of course, is a former Church of Christ minister. And he's written a fantastic book uh, that I highly recommend people get, especially if you're dialoguing with a Church of Christ person. It's called Christ in His Fullness in which he outlines his journey of faith and also what took him from the roots in Southern Baptist to the pulpits of the Church in Christ and ultimately to experience Christ in his fullness as a Catholic. You've heard him on this show and also on uh, lots of different shows, especially Journey Home, EWTM Bookmark, and Deep in Scripture. And Bruce, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics.
1: Uh, Focus on the Father of the Day, I realized that... um... The coverage down in my little Kentucky cabin in the holler wasn't good this morning. And so I jumped in my mobile office and ran up the road a half a mile. So I'm parked <laughs> under a tree uh, to do the program to make sure I didn't lose my connection. But that's one of the things you get for living out in the sticks.
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you made the effort. And uh, yeah, well, at least you have lots of uh, beautiful scenery to look at while you talk on the phone. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. so uh, it, it's been a long time. So uh, we've gotten a lot of new listeners, and I, 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 I am just enthralled by your own journey of faith and how God had a plan for you, which took you an amazing path. Uh, I guess when we started at the beginning, so you were born in a Southern Baptist home.
1: Yes, um, my, my family was Southern Baptist. My, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents were particularly devout really great examples for me. My, my grandfather was a deacon in his Baptist church and a member of the organization known as the, the Gideons, the guys who put the Bibles in the hotel rooms, or, or at least do that. I don't used to do that. I don't think they're still allowed to do that, and we not in our, common, our current climate. But um, my grandpa was a Gideon, and, and so you know, I grew up going to church you know, three times a week, you know, you know, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and then Wednesdays, uh, vacation Bible schools, uh, the whole nine yards, and so you know I had a a good um, uh solid uh, upbringing in just kind of a evangelical uh Christian tradition
0: yeah yeah, so yeah the Gideons absolutely um so uh your your uh, roots are in southern baptist uh faith, and of course, for southern Baptists, I guess it wouldn't be right to say you're born into a Southern Baptist home because. For Baptists, uh, ultimately, your faith you're nurtured in a faith, but you really don't become uh, a member till you're old enough to make a decision for Christ.
1: Correct. You know, so you know, bat, most uh, most of them are baptized somewhere between the age of ten, eleven, twelve, something like that, if they are grown up. And so it's one of those things you see in a lot of uh, fundamentalist and evangelical circles. It's you know, everyone likes to think that they're raising their children in the Christian faith, and they certainly would think that their children in some ways are, are different than others. You we're know, raising them in the Christian home, and yet uh, because they, they, they lack that kind of concept of a, of a covenant with the family and, and infant baptism, et cetera, you end up having, you know, each child eventually has to make their own decision. Um, and until that time, you know, uh, they're not, uh, properly speaking, a Christian and you know if you get really technical about it you know you've got a 10 11 12 year old 13 year old son or daughter and up to a certain point you know when you realize that child has hit an age of accountability then you're kind of anxious about whether or not they're going to get saved or not and um and so but as, you know, as catholics of course we believe you make decisions as well you make a decision you can confirm etc and, and and just because you're baptized uh as an infant doesn't mean that uh that you're walking with Christ when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. You still got to make that decision for daily, ongoing walk with Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so, as Southern Baptist, uh, uh, were you born in Kentucky?
1: No, no. I was actually raised in South Florida. And uh, and I cannot, no matter how hard I try, pass for a local in Kentucky. Uh, And so uh, I've tried. I, I try to walk. I try to talk, and I don't fool anybody. So I, I grew up in South Florida, but then actually, uh, you know, it wasn't until I to college uh, at Auburn University that I actually began to question what made me as a Southern Baptist Christian different from a Methodist Christian or a Church of Christ Christian or Pentecostal. I don't think I thought too much about Catholics because I already knew that they weren't Christians, but I wanted to know what made me different from other Christians, and uh, I started doing a lot of exploring in college.
0: Yeah. So is that because you're interacting with uh, uh, kids of different denominations? You're kind of uh, face-to-face with this kind of pluralism within Protestantism?
1: I'd say that's right, you know, because, yeah. you know, the idea there, you know, you off to college, is the first time you're away from home, you know, with, you know, yeah. you know, everything's your responsibility, you know, you're listening to programs, you're, you're you know, I, I, I visit some other churches, uh Uh, And so, you know, and Auburn was a pretty large campus at the time, 23,000 with all kinds of campus ministries and campus preachers, et cetera. Um, uh, I distinctly remember one interesting factoid is while I was still a Baptist, I I would visit on occasion the local Methodist uh, church, the college Methodist uh, church, because um, uh, they had the Lord's Supper like on Thursday afternoons at noon. They had this communion rail, the whole nine yards, and growing up Baptist, You know, you had the Lord's Supper once or twice a year, and here they they offered it all the time, and I didn't believe yet in the Eucharist or the Real Presence, but there was something that was really drawing about this whole idea of going up in front of the church, kneeling, and and receiving, uh, you know, what they considered to be Holy Communion. Um, But that was, again, being exposed to a lot of things from the TV and being able to interact freely.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, when did the Church of Christ get on your radar screen? I got on my radar
1: screen way back well in high school, I visited a church of Christ uh, with a local friend of mine, a friend who was my best friend, and he went to a, a small church of christ and the and the first sermon I heard was why Baptists are going to hell and uh, <laughs> and uh, I went home and I, 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 I and I talked to my pastor about it, thought he could give me some help, and instead he scolded me for visiting another church and so I, I really wasn't too happy with that scenario either way, but churches of Christ entered the scene because when I was in college and I was, I, was, I was exploring different things, visiting different churches, I one day watched a, a Church of Christ uh, television show on a Sunday morning and realized I hadn't visited the local Church of Christ, and uh, and so and I had that experience. While you know a couple of years before in high school, so I went and I just decided to visit the Auburn Church of Christ, where um, I met a rather extraordinary campus minister, uh, an extraordinary uh, man named Jim Brinkerhoff, who's gone off to his reward. Uh, but uh, he was somebody who was the first preacher I ever talked to that would actually take my questions seriously and, and not belittle me uh, for asking something that he may have thought was stupid. Um, and so he was somebody I could dialogue with, ask questions of. And, and I became very attracted to the Church of Christ idea of, um, of being a Christian-only but not the only Christians, that the Churches of Christ were kind of uh, the forerunners of the modern ecumenical movement. The Stone-Campbell movement, beginning back in the early 1800s, was a movement to get beyond human creeds, et cetera, and to uh, foster Christian unity. Um, by dumping supposedly man-made traditions and and restoring the New Testament pattern, going all the way back to the, the beginning to, to see you know you know and treat the Bible as a blueprint, if you will, and and of course it's a it's a, it's a flawed premise in, in many respects, and we've discussed that in the program before. But but at the time, you know that was very very attractive to me because you know, I was surrounded by what you could only describe as denominational chaos, and here were people that insisted on being called just Christians, Christians only, and they insisted that's all they were, and they had Bible verses to back it up, et cetera, and uh, and then a a really dynamic uh, campus minister. And so uh, after a a couple of months of interaction with them, I was baptized at the Auburn Church of Christ and became uh, a Church of Christ member. Where I met my wife, Gloria, who was a fifth-generation Church of Christ member from Kentucky, which is how I ended up here. And then we were sent off to uh, a Church of Christ preacher training school, uh, upon graduation, in order to become uh, missionaries.
0: Wow, fifth generation from in Kentucky. So that had to have gone all the way back to the beginning.
1: It's fourth or fifth generation. Yeah, her great grandfather was an elder oh. in the Church of Christ she grew up in, and so uh, the Stone Campbell movement had you know began. It was launched uh, in pretty much the uh, in Kentucky, uh, the Great Cane Ridge revival, which is known in hi- history was was something that took place. Uh, under the leadership of Barton W. Stone, who's the Stone of the Stone-Campbell movement. And and so Church of Christ around here are very, very strong, uh, mm-hmm. back from the highest per capita membership anywhere in the world. And uh, all of Lori's family who are, are churchgoers or, are Church of Christ members. And, and, uh, and they were initially thrilled that she was going to marry a Church of Christ preacher. Uh, but that kind of... Uh, got turned sideways on them eventually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I, so, so you become a member of the Church of Christ. Um, do you remember when did you start feeling the call to ministry? I mean that that in of itself is a, a big stuff, uh, forward.
1: You know, when I was still a Baptist, um, I was uh, I was very much drawn to the idea of being a foreign missionary, and uh, and so uh, as a uh, Baptist. I was a, I was an agriculture student at Auburn, and I had this idea of becoming like an agricultural missionary, a Southern Baptist. You know, could send you to some place like the the Philippines or something where you would be there to evangelize, but also to help people. You know, by from an agricultural perspective, and and so uh, I was very much drawn to that. And in fact, uh, before during, joining the Church of Christ, while I was still a Baptist, I joined a uh, um, a little group of. Uh, of young men that were preachers on the campus and so you know we'd, we'd station ourselves on a on a busy thoroughfare uh between uh two of the main parts of campus where students were walking you know and, and flooding the, the the walkway you know certain hours of the day we preach and uh thought that's what god wanted us to do and in fact it was through just such a preacher that in my own life still as a southern baptist i had a a kind of conversion experience that 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 made me realize that some of my career goals were, were kind of idolatrous in a way, and that opened my heart to the idea of ministry. Um, and so that was something that was on my radar screen as a, as a Baptist, and then uh, when I joined the Church of Christ, uh, Jim, the campus minister, he, you know, just did the natural transition. He said, you want to be a, a, a foreign missionary? You need to go to the Sunset School of Preaching in Lubbock, Texas, where that's their emphasis. And and they'd sent students to some 120 different countries in the world in, in their 30 years of existence. And so uh, it was the place to be. And so that's something that was on my radar screen for for, for some time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, you, you go down to Texas. Um, uh, boy, we're coming up to the break. Uh, Sure. I, I wanted to kind of get a, a feel for, you know, w- what is Church of Christ Seminary like? Is it very intense in terms of theological uh, formation? That's a,
1: good, that's a good thing to discuss. I, I will say this. It's like being preached to eight hours a day. So I heard, oh. I heard six, seven, eight sermons a day. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, because all the teachers were preachers. And it was called a school of preaching. And so, uh, you know, you, you know we, we did 120 semester hours in two years. It's pretty packed, Uh, and and, and we've studied every book of the Bible, memorized large portions of Scripture. However, what was lacking was, in my opinion, any kind of concept of systematic theology. So uh, unlike a Catholic seminary where uh, you study philosophy first before getting into theology, uh, that was not the case in a Church of Christ training institute.
0: All right, yeah. We'll hit pause right there. We were chatting with Bruce Sullivan, talk about his journey of faith into the Catholic Church. More to come right after this. You listen to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with Bruce Sullivan, talking about his journey of faith from Southern Baptist roots to uh, Church of Christ. And actually, we're at the point where uh, you're talking about going to uh, Church of Christ seminary. And I suppose it stands the reason that if you're going to get rid of all creeds and confessions and just go by a pattern that you find in the New Testament, you're not going to do uh, you're not going to dive into things like church history or theology or anything like that. You're just going to be going to the text of Scripture.
1: Basically, that's true. You know, we, we did we did you know some church history, but again, it was, it was very you know just kind of slanted. I like guess like all history can be depending on who's presenting it. But but it was primarily a, a two year long Bible study, and um, and so we studied every book in the Bible, memorized large portions of it. It was a very exciting environment. We had a we had a chapel service every morning in the Hall of Flags. There's like 120 uh, flags for countries they've already sent con- uh, uh, missionaries to, and then like a, on the other wall, like 20 or 30 more flags that still have yet to be targeted, et cetera. And, and the teachers that I had, the 15 or so teachers of the school, had all been missionaries uh, uh, in, in, in other countries, mostly Catholic countries. <laughs> and so they didn't necessarily have a friendly view towards uh, Catholic theology. But when I said that they didn't do a lot of things like systematic theology, so, you know, we studied the Bible a great deal. Um, But, for example, the way I kind of liken, oftentimes, it's not meant disrespectfully, but a lot of, you know, Church of Christ theology consists of doctrinal points uh, that are the points, and they connect the dot picture, but the dot's not connected. So you got this point, this point, this point, this point, and they're not really connected together in a systematic way, the way that the Catholic faith is is one coherent whole, so that by way of example, if you take, for example, um, uh, original sin— well, you know, they think original sin means infant damnation and that infants are guilty of sin, et cetera, et cetera. And so since they take the fact that, well, no, no little child is, you know, an infant's not committed personal sin, and yet at the same time we know that eventually everybody becomes sinners at some point in their life, you know, they, they, they don't know how to, to actually explain that, at least not in my opinion, in a, in a satisfactory manner as to how do you explain this human phenomenon apart from a reality? Like the effects of original sin, and so so there's a lot of like to say points of doctrine, points of dogma. They're not connected very well, and so systematic theology was really lacking.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, uh, so wall to wall preaching, uh, you know, um, so how does that work? So, um, you graduate from seminary. Um, do they place you in a church, or do you choose a missionary oh. church?
1: Good question. And first of all, they didn't call it a seminary because the word seminary is not found in the Bible. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's what they said. Mm-hmm. They called, and since in the book of Acts, there's a school of Gamaliel, well, we can use the word uh-huh. school. And that's one of those little Church of Christ hangups. We call Bible things by Bible names. And, and they think that helps reduce division, et cetera, but it gets kind of pedantic. But basically, they they basically, uh, they called it a school of preaching. And, and all churches of Christ are completely independent of each other. There's no... There's no uh, denominational superstructure. Each uh, church is, 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 is uh, governed by, by its elders and the, and, the, and the people in that church. Uh, their schools are just individually supported by those who want to support them. In fact, there's different schools are preaching around the country and some who aren't in fellowship with each other because they think they're heretics, etc. And so when you graduate, you know, you're on your own. I mean, you know, it, what happens is, um, like when I went there, you couldn't possibly have a job and, and, and do this, the course load. So ahead of time, you basically raise support. There'd be congregations around the country that actually liked that school, that supported the Sunset School of Preaching, and they, they wanted to support you to go and get your training, and they provide us with monthly support. Uh, and then when you graduated, well, then you'd go try to find a church to serve, or in our case, we were forming a missionary team, which, again, to form a missionary team meant you had to go out and find congregations or individuals that would support you or sponsor you just to, you know, to feed you while you're doing that work. And so very, very independent structure, uh no assigning anybody any place uh and uh, and no job security either <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow so uh so you didn't end up in the missionary field or did you
1: i didn't uh we were, our team was supposed to go uh we found sponsoring congregations and the 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 plan was to spend 2 years at these sponsoring congregations, getting to know them, et cetera, and getting ministry experience. And then we were, we were going to Brazil, uh, a city in Brazil called Macio. And the reason we picked Brazil is because that's the largest Catholic country in the world, and no one needs a gospel more than Catholics. Um, that's what I thought back then because I didn't think Catholics are Christians. However, now I do believe Catholics are Christians, and I still think they need the gospel. <laughs> you know, we get the gospel <laughs> preached in the Catholic Church, but basically, right. we you know we went there for two years, and during that time, our missionary team kind of fell apart. In fact, the congregation I was with kind of fell apart, um, and so then I was faced with you know you know having to you know go to Plan B, and so then I went and uh, hooked up with a church that wanted me to be their campus minister for a while, and then after doing that for a while, a year or so, I realized that. Um, uh, it, it was not just Catholic priests who had taken vows of poverty, and when I had actually paid my, my income taxes with a credit card, I thought, this isn't working out very well. And yeah. so uh, I, I we moved back to glorious State of Kentucky, where I took a, a secular job um, with, with the University of Kentucky as a county extension agent, and then would preach and things on the side, which when you live in a rural area in Baptist churches and Church of Christ and other small congregations, it's very common for their Preachers and their ministers to have jobs, you know, driving the school bus or doing something, uh, because the little small churches oftentimes can't provide a living. That's what we end up doing um, eventually.
0: Okay, so so when did uh, Catholicism come on the radar? Because you said before that uh, you know they they weren't even considered Christian. In fact, you're thinking of going to Brazil because it's predominantly Catholic. Uh, when did it get on the radar, or was it more that the Church of Christ? Uh, uh, the vision of the Church of Christ seemed to fall apart.
1: No, it, it wasn't. It, it, it's not on the Church of Christ. It was basically my job uh, as a county extension agent uh, for 4-H and youth development in the county that I was living in, put me in touch with lots of folks. And uh, a family had moved into our area from California that was going to homeschool in Kentucky, which homeschooling in, in Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's kind of a destination spot for homeschoolers. And, uh, and this family was at a very devout Catholic. And I got to know them through my job, and I thought it was a crying shame to see them all go to hell. And so um, I decided to try to introduce them to the true church of Christ, uh, the true gospel of Christ. And I was trying to evangelize them and convert them. And after about a year of arguing, I issued her a challenge. I said, look, uh, her name was Sharon. I said, Sharon, if you can show me from the Bible, if you or anyone else can show me from the Bible, with the Catholic Church is the church that Christ established. I'll become a Catholic tomorrow. Um, and I was doing that to, to rope her into a Bible study because I knew she couldn't do it. And, uh, and also I didn't know about RCIA at the time. You, know, you can't become a Catholic tomorrow. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> basically the next day she took me up on the challenge and handed me a book, uh, an obscure piece uh, by a guy named Carl Keating called Catholicism and Fundamentalism. <laughs> I say obscure <laughs> Tongue in cheek, everybody, your your listeners know about that book, and that book oh, was yeah. written just for me, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it it hit all my heroes from Jimmy swagger to Keith Green, and and I took that with me on a business trip, and the first night I called Gloria and said, "We're in a heap of trouble. This guy's asking questions I can't answer," and so the Catholic Church got on my radar screen for me trying to convert Catholics.
0: Wow, wow! So it was Carl Keating's Catholicism fundamentalism that started the ball rolling. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. So do you remember anything particular that popped out with Carl's book, or was it uh, just the overall tenor of the book? Well, the the overall tenor, let me
1: say this. I can't say enough about that book because Carl does something that, that a lot of apologists sometimes don't do a very good job of. He did his best, in my opinion, to get inside the mind of a fundamentalist and present what they think and why they think it. And it wasn't done in a smarmy, condescending, uh, judgmental way. You know, it wasn't put off-putting at all. It was very, very matter-of-fact. Uh, and in my opinion, it you know, demonstrated a great deal of understanding. And the two things about it that jumped out at me was, one, some of my heroes, like Keith Green, who was a, 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 a fundamentalist uh, pop singer, uh, Christian singer and Jimmy Swagger were both very strong influences in my life up to that point, and and, and they each had chapters devoted to them in that book. <laughs> and then the second thing was Carl Keating was the first to raise the ultimate question in my mind as a Bible-only preacher. He raised the issue of canon, and and that was, you know, what books go in the Bible? How do I know that there's uh, you know, we've got 27 letters in our New Testament. Well, how, how do I know that there's not supposed to be 29, and two of them are missing? They would maybe hold keys to understanding the rest. Or how do I know that there's not really 25, and two shouldn't be there? I mean, Martin Luther tried to bump out the book of James. And so the deal is that whole issue of canon was something I'd never really, really considered. And that may seem strange. You know, I was a Bible-only preacher. I went to our school of preaching. But honestly, for most evangelicals and for most fundamentalists, Canon is simply assumed. Or if you do have a class on it, it's it's kind of shallow. It really is. The, the presentation on canon is pretty lame because ultimately to have a a, a, a an infallible certitude about, about the canon of Scripture requires an, an authority, external to Scripture, to bear witness to that. And so once Carl raised that question about the canon of Scripture, I was ruined because now the best I could do was stand in front of a group of people and say – must say at the Lord. I think. Well, I get you know. In other words, here's my opinion of what I think uh, this means about from a book that I think is the word of God. But in reality, you know, Keating helped me to see that you know the only way I could have a sure certitude of canon was through the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. And, if the, and the Catholic Church is not reliable on rega- regarding her testimony about canon. Then, um, excuse me, if she is reliable, if the Catholic faith is reliable, if that's the source I have to go to in order to know with infallible certitude the canon of Scripture, if I have to rely upon her teaching authority for that, how can I accept that authority and then subsequently dismiss her teaching authority when it comes to an authentic understanding of those books? So if the Catholic Church is where I have to go for an authentic um, uh, witness to canon, I also need to listen to her when it comes to the authentic understanding of those books that she witnesses to. that makes yeah. sense?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Very well said too, because uh, like you said, otherwise you're just picking and choosing what you want. And you could say thank you with the canon and I'll just interpret it however I want. But like you said, if uh, the church isn't reliable on the one, how could it be reliable on the other?
1: And that's the thing. I can remember you know, the, one of the teachers there who's gone to his reward since. He was a strong anti-Catholic, was a missionary in Italy for the Church of Christ for, for many years. You know, he tried hard to keep me from making this, quote, mistake of becoming Catholic. And he didn't realize if you keep ca- chopping down the Catholic Church, you're chopping down the tree that holds up the whole thing called Christianity. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, very good. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan, talking about his journey of faith. More to come right after this. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with Bruce Sullivan, talking about his uh, journey of faith into the Catholic Church. And, Bruce, I I have to ask, because you know me, I love the issue of the canon. Uh, What was the—how if? in the world do you come up with uh, a canon based only on Scripture and ignoring the historic Church?
1: Well, that's simple. You don't know? Grandma.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, knew the, I, I knew the
1: I knew the I knew the word of God because Grandma told me so. I, right. I'm I'm being a little bit facetious, but that but that's what it boils down to. So the, yeah. the, the irony is, is that you know while Protestants and and, and Church of Christ, et cetera, while they disparage sometimes the idea of sacred tradition, mm-hmm. the Bibles they have on their coffee tables are there because of sacred tradition, their own tradition. You know, in other words, they they've, they've handed that on. You know, you, know, you you believe. That the Bible's word of God because your parents told you, your grandparents told you, your preacher tells you, and, and you've grown up with it. And so it's just something that for most the most part, most Protestants never ask themselves, yeah, but why did they believe? How how did we actually get this? And 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 the closest thing I ever heard, anybody trying to, you know, what what happens is um uh you know that they will dig for every kind of little uh, uh, straw they can grasp at, and so and so in order to come up with a canon that is independent of you know the Catholic Church, so they can dismiss mm-hmm. the Catholic Church. Like well, they'd always used to cling to the, the, Mur- the Muratorian fragment, you know, and you know what that is, you know, and in the you know, mm-hmm. late second century document where you know supposedly list you know the canon of scripture almost completely, you know, a little fragment torn out, and it's like oh here we see a, a list of canon that that's pretty much like what we have today, and it's like yeah but wh- why is that document authoritative and it's, and it's not complete and then i I, I wrote a book uh by Geisler and Nix called um uh introduction to the bible and and it had a section on canon and they'd get all excited it was kind of funny you 'd read it and, and talk about the various codices, the Alexandrian codice and very things, the codex and all these things and they'd say and you know from the third century the fourth century and 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 that it's canon is exactly like our canon today, with the exception of with the exception of you know First of second Peter or Jude, except. It's like, yeah, yeah, with the exception of, and so the reality is, you know, you grasp it strong, trying to come up with some fact, you know, to say that, well, we don't really need a, an authority outside of, 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 you know, the Catholic Church, particularly, to tell us what canon is. But the reality is, you can't, it's impossible not to have such. Um, the way I, the way I describe, you know, the whole issue of canon and scripture and the church and the relationship is that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired certain members of the church to write to other members of the church about matters pertaining to the church. And it was all understood against the backdrop of the shared understanding of the church. And so, that, you know, so that basically, you know, that's – that, and I've never met a Protestant that could, that could deny that. That is a fact. And so the church is there from start to finish. The church, you know, the church wrote the letters. The church received the letters. The church preserved the letters. How do we get off now saying, well, we don't need the church to tell us what they are? But that's what's done because the minute you start going down that path, which I'd sense this sometimes, the minute you start hammering on this whole business of canon, a lot of times folks want to change the subject because it's taking them to a destination they don't want to go, which is going to have to be acknowledging the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. So that many times what you end up having and you're having a conversation, I say, well, look, 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 we both believe the Bible is the word of God, so we don't really – need to go into this, you know, how we got it kind of thing. Oh, no, 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 yes, we do, because why you believe the Bible is the Word of God has everything to do with how you approach the Bible as the Word of God. And if I can't get there apart from the teaching and authority of the Church in order to understand how I got it, well, then, you know, that, that's a problem when it comes to how I approach it.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh canon huge issue. And I, I know through our other discussions, there there were lots of other issues as well that popped up.
1: Oh yes, you know, you know the the canon. The canon was the issue that got me to question where I was at the time. You know, the, the the canon was the thing that you know rocked my my world in terms of you know my my Protestant, um, my Protestant world. But that's but but basically rocking that world, you know, exposing the holes in it, is not the same thing as substantiating the Catholic claims. You know, so. So like my wife, Gloria, who took four years longer than I did to become Catholic, the way she put it was, um, while she – you know, during those four years, she said, while I no longer believe I have to be a member of the Church of Christ to go to heaven, that doesn't mean that I'm convinced I can get there as a Catholic. So proving the Church of Christ wrong or or showing the hole in the argument of canon doesn't mean the Catholic Church is right about everything else. And so then – but that became – since I realized that I had, a, if I was going to continue as a Christian, I had something serious to deal with here now that the canon was thrown up in the air for me. That opened my ears, if you will, to listen to what the Catholic Church actually had to say about other controversial doctrines, whether it be the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist or Marian doctrines or the papacy, etc. Whereas in the past, you know, I, I, I'd be more inclined just to, okay, here's their arguments, here's my Bible verse to contradict it, blah, 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 blah. blah. Now, I'm all ears because you know my own world, like I say, has been rocked. And 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 the answer, the only people that seem to hold an answer to that or solution to that problem, is the Catholic Church. And if the Catholic Church is not as she claims to be, my whole concept of Christianity starts melting down like a like a ball of wax.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like you have uh, with the the cover of your book, uh, Christ in His Fullness, the uh, apple cart being turned over.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was Marcus Grodi's idea. Uh, that was good <laughs> and so, uh, when he And so when he gave me that picture, I had no idea what the picture was going to be, and he took that picture on his farm. Uh, it's been photoshopped a little bit. I don't think his homegrown apples look quite that good. But basically, <laughs> um, you know, that was his idea, and, and I would have never have come up with that for a cover. But but when I saw it, I said, yeah, that's it, man. Apple carts overturned. And so you got to, you got to, you know, because a a chapter I had in the book was apples, apples everywhere. And once a man's apple cart is overturned, if he's going to be honest, well, then that kind of puts him in the position of listening more. And that's why I really believe in apologetics. Sometimes it, it pays to have in your toolbox you know some questions, you know that are stumpers that are that are not designed to make you look smart and someone else look like dumb. That's not the point, but to get people's attention. And you know, the, the way that the whole issue of canon got my attention to help me see that there's something lacking in how I'm approaching this thing called Christianity. And this is a very important thing because that's the whole issue of authority. And and Christianity, any way you slice it, is a religion based upon authority because it's a revealed religion. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, very good. So, did um, so suddenly Catholicism kind of comes up on the radar? Uh, was there a, a tipping point where you said, you know what, I have to commit? You know, I, I can no longer, in good conscience, not become Catholic.
1: Oh yeah, uh, the tipping point was at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, the first ever coming home network internationals um, a retreat. The organization had formed that summer, and in December of '93. They had a um, uh, a retreat for uh, people on the journey, and I there was like a dozen people there, uh, and I was the only person who's not yet Catholic. And mm. and at that point, I've been going through all the arguments, and this is something that I think applies to everybody. I gotten to the point where I could argue both sides of all the questions. You know, I, I could I could argue for or against the papacy. I, I I'd heard all the pros and cons, and and was becoming kind of mentally muddled by it because. You know, conversion is not simply an intellectual pursuit. If it was only an intellectual pursuit that I could come up with uh, absolute certitude by the power of my own intellect alone, by unaided reason alone, that would lead to something called hubris. You know, it's no longer the gift of faith, uh, it's a gift of wit. You know, I, 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 I figured this out. And so I'd gotten to the point where I knew I needed help. And at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, when we had this, uh, this uh, retreat, uh, I was staying with a host family. And uh, the first morning of that retreat, I knew I was in trouble. I needed some help. And so I'd been reading about the communion of saints. And, uh, and I thought, well, if this doctrine is true, I could use some help. And so I went down to the little prayer closet they had in their house, and I decided to invoke the prayers, the intercessions of Peter, Paul, and Mary. I thought it sounded good. It had a ring to it. Yeah. And yeah, so it I asked for the <laughs> prayers of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And, and, and they heard my prayers, apparently, and answered because I went to Mass. That, that, that morning right afterwards, so the first time, it's like only the second time I've ever been to Mass in my life, um, third time maybe I've gone to weddings and stuff, but I sat in the back, and I just listened, and I just listened, and I think the Holy Spirit spoke, and as I was watching uh, the Mass proceed, a series of questions you know, came up in my mind, and they're questions like, what if that man, the priest, is who they say he is? What if what they say is happening? you know, the body and blood of Christ being confected at the altar. What they say is happening is actually happening. And as these questions rolled through my mind, uh, instead of trying to come up with objections, I just listened. And a confirming miracle uh, occurred in my conversion, and that was I was rendered speechless, which for most people who know me think that's kind of miraculous. And <laughs> and I, I didn't know what to say. And I was, I was speechless. I tried to tell... Scott Hahn about it afterwards, I told my wife about it, I to tell Marcus about it, you know, after, at the, at the, uh, and I just couldn't even, the words wouldn't come. At that point, I knew I was becoming Catholic, and it's because of grace. And so I'd done all my studying, I'd done all the arguments, I'd, I'd read all the magazines, all the issues that this rock magazine had published, but grace was needed to tie it all together. And so there in the setting, in the context of the Mass, you know, in response to the prayers of, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, in response to the prayers of others, you know, you know, God gave me the gift of faith where I knew I was going to be Catholic. There's still a rough road to hoe. There's still a lot more ground to cover. But somehow I just knew that this was going to happen. And it happened, you know, about I was received about a year and a half later.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, we only have maybe a minute and a half left. But uh, once you came into this Catholic Church, you ca- heard the call to uh, join the diaconate.
1: Yes, uh, when I first came into church, people were saying things like, "Oh, if you considered being a priest I was saying you don't realize there's there's no parallel there's not a parallel between a, a Catholic priest and a and a Protestant minister you know and i spent so people started planting this idea in my head about being a a deacon you know because of preaching, et cetera um, mm-hmm. but I knew that I had to learn how to be a Catholic layman first um, and so uh, while that idea was planted in my psyche quite early um in fact you know fifteen years ago i i, can, I actually Applied uh, for admission to the program twice, and the first time when I was doing it, my 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 sons were all kind of young, and and uh, my daughters were young, and, and during the interview process, my wife Gloria said, um, "You know, Bruce, there's a lot of things that you say you're going to do with the kids that you're not doing right now, so I don't know how you're going to do this and do that." And that was like a thunderclap, and it, and it underscored the fact that I already had a vocation, and being a being a being a, a husband and a father is a, is a full-time vocation and that the timing wasn't right for this other. And so then the, the document went the back, on the back burner for 10 years. But every time I went to Mass, every time I went to Mass, know, 10 years, the thought would come up in my mind and you know, the Holy Spirit calling. And so the second time I applied, the timing was right. And when my kids were grown and I was ordained almost two years ago, and one of the greatest things that ever happened to me.
0: Yeah, thanks be to God. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Gary. God bless you and all your listeners.
0: Thank you. And it's Bruce Sullivan. Uh, the book is Christ in His Fullness. You get it at Coming Home Network. And uh, wow, the hour's flown. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you at the Terry and Justice Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye bye, everyone.